early church fathers who was most influential, um, a really important figure in church history is St. Augustine. And he has this quote. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. People who have read a lot more St. Augustine and have uh, studied a lot more of him than I have say that this was really influential in his own personal testimony. And it was an influential line and truth and statement that formed the way he did Bible study. He did theology in the way he communicated it to the people of God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. We are all people of passions, of loves, of longing. We've talked about in Sunday school the last couple weeks when we've met that really we are people who are driven by our loves more than our knowledge. We have understanding, we know some things, but what is it that captures our mind, that captures our heart, that moves us along? We are all people of longing. This is appropriate in a lot of ways, and it's right that we would be people of longing because we are exiles, aren't we? We are strangers. We, we belong to a different kingdom than the kingdom that we're living in. We talk about the, a dual age often, and it's not just sort of a neat way to do theology. It, it's who we are and how we live. We are citizens of heaven, Paul would say in Philippians. We're citizens of another kingdom living now in an age that is passing away. There is something in the hearts of all of us. There is longing in the hearts of all of us. And that longing is not inappropriate. Where we get into trouble is when we try to fulfill and satisfy that longing with the wrong thing. When we look for it in relationships, we are disappointed and we are frustrated. Because either the, the affection is not returned or it's not as consistent as you, as you want it to be or it's not happening in the timing that you think it should. And so there is a frustration to that longing. If you try to find, fulfill your longing in, in recognition and being appreciated, again, it'll be disappointing to you. Your own insecurities, your own failures, You'll never get that, that recognition that you think that you should. The problem comes when we misdiagnose our longings. We look for that fulfillment elsewhere. J.R.R. Tolkien, in one of his essays, says this, We all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it, but only just glimpsing our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, at its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. We all long for Eden. I do think it comes down to this, and Genesis 2 will help us in this. We'll see what exactly we were created for, who we were created to be. We saw last week some with Adam and Eve, and, and, or with Adam and being formed from the dust of the ground, receiving the breath of life, and then he is placed in this garden, and he is commissioned to work within this garden. And in this garden, we see what man was created to be, primarily fellowship with God. That is the root, that is the heart of our longing. 
You can seek to satisfy at other places, but it is fellowship with God. And we, we experience fellowship with God. And so some of that longing is satisfied, but it will never be wholly satisfied on this side of the return of Christ. We looked last week as we come to Genesis 2, just a moment of review before we jump into looking at Eden. We come to Genesis 2 and there's sort of a a, a clear new section in Genesis 2 verse 4 for us in Genesis. Remember, it's not two competing creation narratives here, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, even though they can look a, a little different from one to the other. But what we have in Genesis 1 is that sort of global creation. And then in Genesis 2 and verse 4, we see that important transition phrase, these are the generations of. And in that, we transition now to a localized story of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And in that, if you remember, then Moses takes the name of God and he changes how he refers to God. And it's important that we see it here. And it's only in chapter 2, from verses 4 to the end, that, it, that Moses refers to God in this way. And it's the name Yahweh, how he's been referred to as Creator, Almighty God. And now, in your text, you'll see Lord God, the two names combined. And what it is, it's Yahweh Elohim. And it's the idea of covenant Lord. And so you have Almighty Creator, now of his own volition, moving in to relationship with his creation. The Creator covenanting and being obligated to, by His own freedom, His own will, entering into this relationship with His creation. And He places Adam and Eve then, Adam right now, into the garden. So today we simply want to look at Eden and look what God called Adam to do in Eden. And hopefully it will inform us of this longing of the heart. What is it exactly that we were created to be? And so we'll see Adam. Hopefully it will inform us now and it will give us some hope for the future as well. So Eden, really just three points about it. Number one, Eden was a place where man could dwell with God. Eden was a place where man could dwell with God. Listen to this quote from Gerhardus Vasa, a biblical theologian. He says, The garden is the garden of God, not in the first instance an abode of man as such, but specifically a place of reception of man into fellowship with God in God's own dwelling place. There can be no doubt concerning the principle of paradise being the habitation of God where he dwells in order to make man dwell with himself. This was the beauty of Eden, this garden planted in the east. And God plants it here, and it becomes the dwelling place of God where he invites man into fellowship with him. He forms Adam, the earthling, out of the dust of the earth and invites him into fellowship, into covenant relation with him. And really what you have here in Eden is this picture of the dwelling place of God that man is allowed to come into and be a part of and enjoy fellowship with God. You'll see as you you trace the Garden of Eden throughout, there's a whole biblical theologies written that trace the Garden of Eden. And, And there's interesting as you see it, it starts to be called the Garden of God or the Garden of the Lord as you move through the Old Testament. And you see all of this intentional overlapping imagery between the temple and the tabernacle with Eden. 
that you have this dwelling place of God where God will be with his people in Eden. And then you see, even as they're exiled from the garden and they move forward, that God still gives a way for his people to dwell with him. And he sets up the temple in the tabernacle. And you see all of this overlapping imagery. And then you see it again as you move in the New Testament. And you realize Jesus Christ incarnate as he becomes that temple, tabernacles among us. And we can know the presence of God through Jesus Christ. You'll trace it all the way in Revelation then in the new creation. Which is now a city which once again is reflecting this garden presence of fellowship with God. This is what we were created for. This alone is what will really fully satisfy the longing of the heart. This fellowship with God. And you see it established here early on in Eden. You see it in chapter 3. I don't want to steal Adam's um, text as we get to the fall, but you will see in 3 as, as, as it pictures God walking in the garden walking about and fellowshipping. You see that later in the tabernacle, that Jesus walks about in the tabernacle in the temple. We see that promise in Revelation that Jesus Christ walks about in the midst of his church. And so there is this fellowship that is enjoyed in Eden as God tabernacles, as God temples with his people. Secondly, we see that Eden was paradise, but it was not the new creation. Eden was paradise, was not the new creation. So as we, we see this, this fellowship of God, sometimes we can get into our minds maybe you know, a little too much of that Eden is just, I don't know, some, how you might picture it. We see it is paradise. It, it is perfectly built, but it is not the new creation. Just like Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground, breathing into the breath of life, and we see that he was good. God proclaims that, that he was good. He's morally upright. He had every chance to succeed, but he was not in a glorified state. He was still in a state of probation. There was still set before him promise and warning and command. And the same thing is true with Eden. It is, it is a beautiful paradise, but it's still not glory. It's still not the new creation. And we can see this primarily through the two trees that are placed in the garden. It's interesting. I don't know how everyone views the trees in the garden. I think some people can think of them as almost like there's some sort of magical sense to these trees. Like if I were to walk up, you see it in the the pictures on a flannel graph, you know, where there's the tree of life, and it's got like the most beautiful, bright apples, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It looks a little scarier. There's some carefully placed branches and shrubs, and there's Adam and Eve behind those carefully placed branches, just, you know, eating delicious fruit, whatever it is they're doing. The trees are real, but there's no sense of like magic in their material being that let's just say it's an apple on that tree of life that somehow there's life-giving power in the fruit and the material itself but first in a very general sense the trees are sacramental in the broad sense of the word and that they are physical means of a spiritual transaction they are physical pictures of spiritual realities just uh, using the Lord's Supper as, as an illustration for us. There is physical bread here. It's tangible in its material. 
But there isn't something in the material of the bread that is life-giving. Or in the, the cup. There's not something in the material essence of it of itself. But it is a spiritual mean. It is a physical means that God gives us to teach us things spiritual. To nourish us spiritually. The same thing is true with, with the trees in the garden. It's God condescending to men, to Adam, to, to teach them and to instruct them and to nourish them and be gracious to them. And he does through, so through these physical means, these, these trees that are planted there. So with the tree of life, you have this reminder always that our life exists in God. He is the giver of life. We just saw it. God forms, as the scripture would say, out of the earth he forms earthlings. And then he breathes into them this, this breath of life, this immortal soul. But that life, that e- eternal soul does not exist, does, is not maintained outside of the care and graciousness of God. And the tree of life is there to remind us at, at all times, to remind Adam as this picture that your life exists in the Creator. That it is through my graciousness flowing to you, Adam, that you have life. And then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. There's a lot of different ideas of, of what this might mean. I think primarily it's just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is there to indicate, again, our dependence on God, that we don't have moral autonomy. That God, at st- what's at stake is that God as a creator declares what is right and what is wrong, how his creation is to live. There's a clear line still between Adam, the created one, and God, his creator. They might enjoy fellowship, but life exists only as God gives it. And how life is to be lived in the garden, how one is to live before their God, what is declared to be right and wrong, that alone belongs to God to decide. There isn't moral autonomy as a, as a creature to, for you to decide what is truth? What is right and wrong? And make that decision apart from the Creator. And so the, the, in this probation period, there is one prohibition. Don't eat of this fruit of this tree. This belongs to God. And you have very clearly, here's life as in God, and to not have faith in Him is death. <laughs> the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the outcome, the Scripture would tell us, of partaking of it. The emphasis is on the prohibition, not the properties of the element that makes sense. It's on the prohibition, do not partake of it, do not not go after what is not yours. Autonomy from God. I mean, the application is clear, right? (laughs) How often do we try to operate and think through and decide what is right and wrong apart from seeking God in his face or remaking who God is or what he says to fit what our desire is. We can't know comprehensively because we know everything 
relatively, right? We're finite creatures who have a very limited experience, who, who don't know everything that's happened before, don't know everything that's going to happen in the future. And so we're very limited in, in what we actually know and understand. And yet sometimes we can charge through life just sort of rearranging and deciding right and wrong and moral ethics for ourselves without seeking the face of God, without submitting to his word. There should be a graciousness in the way we communicate with one another as we kind of apply this as well. Somehow we're not the lone voice of, of understanding and reasoning and moral authority. And so you have these two trees that, that are planted here to remind us, to remind Adam that all life exists in God. It is from him. And that as creator, he sets kind of the, the way we are to live and what is right and what is wrong. And it takes obedience to that. And then Adam is told then in, in this environment to, to cultivate and to create and work. We'll look at that in just a moment. I think the picture is that then Eden, this garden in the east, as they are to cultivate it and to work it, and then they are, uh, he is given Eve and they are commanded to be fruitful and to multiply, is to spread this garden throughout the world. To fill the earth with people enjoying fellowship with God. And again, we don't know exactly without how that would have transitioned into a new creation had Adam not said, that's not what we're here is to guess how that might look. But we see that God gave them everything necessary in order to succeed. He gave them this beautiful garden, practically filled with everything he needed, aesthetically pleasing. And then he gave them these sacraments of, of the trees, these visual, tangible elements and reminders, condescending to man by physical means to nurture and to strengthen, to teach that all life exists in God, that he is authoritative in our hearts in our life. Thirdly, the last thing we see with Eden then is that man was intended to cultivate and work the Garden of Eden. We see here that work is part of the created order and not simply a result of the fall. It's not just a necessary evil. I think sometimes we do get in our minds that, that because work is difficult, <laughs> like work itself is somehow related to punishment and to the fall. But God at the very beginning created us to be workers. It, in the beginning, work starts right away. It's one of the first things we see about God's creative activity is described as work. Even the way the creation narrative is told to us. It's set up in a regular work week. He worked, he worked six days and then he rested. We see it continue throughout this initial then. He created Adam and, and, and he created him in order that he would work, in order that he would tend, in order that he would cultivate. He equipped him. You think of the things he was called to do, to cultivate the garden, to name the animals, the, the intellect, the skill, what God equipped him to be a, a creative cultivating, caring person. You see, then it continues. You go through Scripture. Adam pointed this out. I thought it was a, a very good point as we look at the Ten Commandments later on in Exodus. And we think about the commandment for Sabbath rest. 
but a major part of that commandment is work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, and on the seventh you shall rest. It is the rhythm of work with Sabbath rest. God intended this to be taking place. Listen, in John chapter 5, verse 17, even as God is described later, Jesus Christ speaking, he says, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. God works. He delights in work. He created Adam and immediately invested in him the skill, the, the mental capacity to be a worker. The, the two verbs that are used there in verse uh, 15, it says, The Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It's the idea of, of to serve in it and then to guard it as well. It clearly communicates that it wasn't his to possess, but it was his to care for, his to cultivate. Tim Keller writes a lot on this idea of cultivating, the idea that literally to be a culture maker. And that, that God created Adam, maybe if you think of it as a gardener is, is a good way to think of it, that when God created Eden, it was good, it was beautiful. But it wasn't, it still needed tending. It still needed caring for. So it wasn't just a, a paradise where no work was needed. There was still cultivating in the garden that needed to be done. And so he equips that, and as a gardener then, what would that look like? And uh, Tim Keller again uses this illustration. It's not the idea of, of just coming in and paving over it. But it's also not just stepping back and doing nothing to it and making sure nothing happens. It's getting in there and improving it and, and working it and, and arranging it for practical needs, for aesthetic beauty. To, to be someone who is engaged in proving culture, who is using what God has gifted them with in a profitable way to help others, to help the culture that we live in. Work is part of our design. It's part of our dignity, thus cultivating society, being profitable, productive workers was intended by God. So we look at this idea then as we now move to some, some application of what does it mean for us now where we come to the table. We, we talked about the longing of the heart. We all long for Eden. So what is the picture of Eden then? It is fellowship with God, created for, for what we were meant to do, fellowship with God and created to be workers, cultivating, using the skills that God has given us to work within the creation that he has not given us to possess but has made us stewards of. So, application to our work life. How does that apply then for our work life and our regular, you know, what you spend most of your life doing? I think most of you would acknowledge pretty quickly, your work environment is not Eden. 
What has the fall done to work life? One, I think it has made work seem pointless at times, right? Isn't that what Ecclesiastes tells us, is life under the sun? It just feels pointless. I think it feels pointless sometimes because the fruitfulness of it, the outcomes of it, rarely match the amount of effort and work and thought that you put into it. I mean, you can think of whatever it is that your industry, your working does, whether it's at home caring for kids or inventing things or whatever it is. The amount of work and effort you put into it rarely does the fruitfulness kind of match what you feel it should be for the amount of effort. And it can feel pointless at times. Work is abused because it becomes a means of, of selfish gains often. Work can be frustrating because it's often not met with appreciation, but instead with ingratitude or conflict. And so it's hard sometimes to look, okay, look at Adam, and it's like, yeah, well, he had it easy working in the garden and cultivating it. How, how does this translate to me? It's, if my work, if I was created to work, and it's not just a matter of the fall that I have to engage in work, th- then how do I work? And I think as we look at what we were created for, as we see how the gospel redeems it, just a few applications. One is that the gospel, knowing what we are created for, knowing how Christ has redeemed that for us, it should change our motivation for work, right? Whatever you're engaged in and working, Colossians 3, do all things heartily unto the Lord and not unto men. There should be a motivation in our work that is glorifying to God. It gives us meaning for Sabbath rest. By that I mean it's not the idea that the accomplishments of your work do not define you. And that you're unable to ever rest from your work, whether it's actually being at a job that you're just at all the time or being able to turn your mind off from it or prioritizing work above all else as if that is kind of your identity and your accomplishments or your self-worth. It, understanding work as God intended it and created us as, as, as it is redeemed for us, it allows us to understand Sabbath rest. It changes the ethics of our work. Honesty, integrity. I think every field has different temptations that come with it. From being a pastor to, I know we have a lot of engineers and developers, or being at home with kids, or whatever it happens to be. You can think of the temptations that come with it. Of pride, honesty, integrity, whatever it might be. Understanding we were created to work to glorify God, understanding the gospel in our lives should change our ethics of work. Finally, it should change our conception of work. I think this is where a lot of us struggle is that a lot of us just view work as that's what we do in order to get to do what we really want to do, which is not work. But even in the most mundane, God has made us and equipped us to be diligent cultivators, people who care, people who try to improve lives for others, no matter how it might feel mundane, people who do this for the glory of God. 
the longings of the heart aren't fulfilled in like just not having to work anymore. But it's realizing the dignity and the image of God that is ours that is expressed and seen through working. And you know this. That's never going to be totally realized this side again of Christ's return. Because the fall is always going to, you know, cause the thorns and the thistles to grow and make it a difficult task at times. But our hearts and our minds can be turned when we think that we were created to do this. God made us to do this. So what does our future look like? Again, Eden is not the same thing as the new creation, but it is a picture of it. The tree of life, it's interesting. You get through Genesis 2, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil never is mentioned again. The tree of life continues to be talked about. You see it coming up in the prophets. You see it often in the Psalms. You'll see it again in the New Testament. You see it in Revelation 21. The tree of life stands in the middle of the city, the river flow from it, just like what you heard this morning from Genesis. God is a life-giving God. The new creation, that longing will be fulfilled in fellowship with God, no longer in a probationary period, but eternal, lasting fellowship with Almighty Creator, Covenant Lord God. I hope that that encourages you, even in your longings now, that you won't replace such an amazing end with something much more temporal, something that isn't really satisfying or lasting, that you put all of your hope and all of your longings to be met in a person or in a job or in whatever it might be. But they would be your find rest as you find your rest in God. And then that that would then, knowing that, would reorient your mind to how you look at work in your life. That your creativity, that that your ingenuity, that your skills, your talents, that, that, that God can use those. Adam and I were talking this week as I was preparing it, and then we ended up getting a, a small little framing job on Wednesday. So we are framing this like massively oversized shelving unit in a really little closet. It was raining on Wednesday, so we're outside cutting, and it's rainy, and it's muddy. It's one of these old homes where none of the walls are plumb, no corner is square. And, you know, we're, and whoever framed it, I mean, there's like a stud, there's no rhyme or reason to where the studs were in the wall. So needless to say, we were getting frustrated. What we thought was going to be a couple-hour job took us all day. And so, you know, some of it we were joking about the text that we happened to be in, but there was a lot of reality in it. How am I going to be satisfied at the end of this job that this shelf has fulfilled all my longings? No. But is there some sense in which God has equipped me and given me mental capacity and given us enough strength and whatever it is to accomplish this task, to do it well, to honor the people who we're doing it for, to, to think of our ethics in it, to think of why we're doing it, 
knowing what we were created for changes, I think, those longings. Not finding ultimate satisfaction in your work, but imaging God in the creative working process, finding meaning in that. And then just remember a beautiful home that we have waiting for us, unending fellowship with our God. Let's take a moment and pray before we move to our sacramental meal here. Lord, we thank you for...